1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerota. Welcome to CNN Tonight. You just heard what CNN's town hall audience thinks about the education system. One word that comes up a lot lately is woke. We've got a new poll that found a majority of Americans think the term woke is a good thing. We'll tell you about that. Also, prosecutors in New York signaling that Donald Trump could be facing criminal charges over the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. This is according to The New York Times. But this is no slam dunk. So will we see a former president indicted for the first time in American history? And what would this mean for his presidential campaign? Plus, new developments in the deadly kidnapping of four Americans, two of them killed in Mexico. Why the cartel suspected of being behind this kidnapping, the so-called Gulf Cartel, has issued a handwritten apology letter. Also, what a woman who was traveling with those four Americans is saying tonight about what happened. Plus, Tennessee's Lieutenant Governor is responding after some posting some supportive comments and emojis on a young gay man's Instagram photos. We'll have to tell you about the posts and the emojis. This, remember, is in a state that's been passing laws to restrict LGBTQ rights. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. So let me bring in our panel. We have the always compelling LZ Granderson. Also former National Security Council Director Hagar Shamali and Republican strategist Joe Pinion. Guys, great to have you here. Good to be here. Okay, let's start with the news in Mexico and what has been happening. It was fascinating that this cartel, this drug cartel in Mexico, issued an apology via a handwritten letter. Let me read a portion of it. They said... Here it is, and here's a picture of it. The Gulf Cartel apologizes to the Society of Matamoros, the relatives of Mizarelli, that was the Mexican citizen, who was also shot and killed, and the affected American people and families. The Gulf Cartel Scorpion Group strongly condemns the events of last Friday. For this reason, we decided to hand over those directly involved and responsible for the acts, who at all times acted under their own determination and indiscipline and against the rules in which the Gulf Cartel
2: Always operates. Um, Shamali, is this for real? Yeah. So it, it reminds me a little bit of my how it is in my son's school when he's done something wrong and he's required to write an apology note. I look at this as just like any authoritarian leader that tries to throw their people under the bus where they're trying to say that, you know what, this was these were rogue elements. They had nothing to do with how we normally pursue policies. In fact, I heard that the that the leader of this cartel said that they normally don't target innocent civilians, which I am certain to be untrue. And so I don't know what they think that their goal will be. For from this it's probably they think that they'll get some kind of lenient uh, response from Mexican authorities in particular. And will or, they?
1: I mean, will they? Well, is this, is this etiquette? Does it change something?
2: I, it won't change. It won't change anything. How I, I will say, however, that the president of Mexico, the current president of Mexico, Mexico Obrador, uh, President Obrador, he has been. He has pursued policies against cartels in a softer way than the previous presidents. And it has directly resulted in an increase in drug cartel violence inside Mexico. And that's why you've seen on the part of the United States and State Department... Uh, These advisories, these trip advisories, travel advisories that have warned Americans against traveling to certain states in Mexico, that the relationship between the United States and Mexico and uh, particularly between authorities and the Drug Enforcement Agency fell apart last year when the president disbanded decades of work between these two sides. And it is we're seeing the direct result of that. Go ahead,
3: Jeff. Look, uh, I think, unfortunately, the reality is, whether we're talking about here at home or whether we're talking about abroad, uh, people rarely pay attention to the drugs that are killing people, that are destroying lives, that are wreaking havoc in communities. Uh, Law enforcement shows up and policy gets changed when bodies start piling up. And I think that there has been this unspoken rule that the cartels are permitted to go and get rich, uh, to continue to work in their joint ventureship with the Chinese Communist Party to flood America with enough fentanyl, just as long as they don't kill any Americans in the process, because then that requires the American government to respond. It requires the Mexican government to act uh, in a new manner. So, yes, I'm sure they would have presented 20 people that they saw responsible for that tragedy that should have never happened if they thought for one second it could allow them for one more day to flood America with one more caseload of the fentanyl that we know is destroying this nation that we love and sending parents to funerals for children that should still still be here today.
1: This has really also shown a spotlight on, on how many people go missing in Mexico. How many Mexicans? I mean, I was reading CNN's reporting. There have been something like 100,000 in recent years Mexicans uh, disappeared without explanation or resolution. And we all remember in 2014 that awful story mm-hmm. about the 43 college kids who mm-hmm. disappeared and there was never a resolution to that. I mean, this is scary stuff.
4: I mean, in a word, yes, it is scary. And it's important that we remind Americans that this is scary because we think Cancun, we think vacations, we think, well, we can be Americans everywhere. And it's like, no, you can be an American in America and then you can be a responsible tourist or visitor everywhere else. And I think obviously what happened in Russia with Brittany Griner is another reminder of that in a different sort of fashion, that you have to respect the laws of this country, but you also have to expect the culture of that country and be cognizant of the fact that the way that the criminal justice system working in this country isn't universal around the world.
1: Here is how, uh, what the Mexican President Obrador has said about some of this uh,
5: today. Nosotros
6: We are not going to allow any foreign government to
5: intervene, much less the armed forces of a
6: foreign government to intervene in our
5: territory.
1: John Miller has just parachuted in, as, uh, <laughs> as he is wont to do. Um, as you know, we're talking about this. Do you want to share any new reporting you have on what's happening here in Mexico, what we've learned today?
5: Well, I think we're at a pivotal moment, because what you saw, to, what you saw was a very calculated move by the cartel, which is, let's not go through a big investigation. Here's five perpetrators we're turning over. Here's a letter explaining that with an apology it was bizarre in the wording of the cartel's letter, because it almost sounded like a government document. They didn't follow procedures. They violated policies. And you know we want to put an end to this so that we can go back to safely breaking the law, dealing drugs, and killing the people we intend to. Um, what everybody's saying is, the government is saying, we're the government. We have control. We have the people in custody. We're the cartel. We made a mistake. We want this to go away. Everybody knows it's bad for business. What the United States is is probably saying is, um, where do we get justice here? Are these people going to be tried in Mexico? Are they going to be tried here? And what about their bosses?
2: Hagar, where do Americans get justice? This issue has highlighted three main problems. Some of them have been already mentioned, right? You have... The risk of travel to Mexico, or and by the way, around the world, right? People need to pay attention to State Department advisories. You've got the this spotlight shown on medical tourism and the risks related to that. And then you have, like I said, this breakdown in the U.S.-Mexico relationship and how we're seeing that danger play out, how we're seeing it uh, with drugs going into the United States on, on an increasing basis, the lack of security at the border. In terms of the U.S. getting justice, to be honest with you, it has to stem from U.S. leadership responding to those problems I just mentioned, uh, reconnecting that relationship, making that happen again with the Mexicans, forcing them to to see the light on, on the benefits of the relationship with the DEA. Uh, communicating to the American public better, the travel advisor state uh, that State Department puts out. I guarantee you, people aren't looking that up on website sa- on their website before they tr- before they. Because travel. I think that we
1: do. T- I mean, so many Americans vacation in Mexico. Yeah, and so we tend to think of it as Cancun, as okay. you said. And so you're saying that travel to Mexico is dangerous in some places. Mm-hmm. Not a blanket uh, statement. Right. So people need to be very specific. And same
2: thing with medical tourism. In some places, mm-hmm. it's safe. Yes? Um, is that fair? I would say that medical tourism... I am not a doctor. I want to I say that to be clear. <laughs> you lied However, to me. <laughs>
5: there, are,
2: <laughs> there are risks because it's unregulated, because rules are, are laxer abroad, and because if something goes wrong, you have little to no legal recourse. And so I would say it's dangerous. And I will also say, by the way, that I have friends and family that have sought medical, dental treatments abroad. But that is a problem... Because of the United States, that's because it's too expensive here um, for a lot of people. And that shouldn't be the case. And so the solutions have to be here, made here by our leaders.
5: By the way, the Mexicans agree with that across the board, which is, you know, the solution for uh, the drug problem is we need to stop buying them. The solution for the violence problem is you think about this, Alison, you, the United States, need to stop flooding our country with the guns that arm the cartels that drive the violence. So we look at it from a very American point of view which is they're out of control, they need to get their act together. Mexico looks across the border and say you're providing us two of our worst problems, the market and the weapons. Well, is I it, think
4: isn't it true that there's only one like area where Mexican citizens can actually acquire guns to begin with in terms of like legally there's only like one spot in the country where they're even allowed to even purchase guns?
5: But I mean, that, as you know, as I you mean, I'm, know, I'm just saying. That's not where but, the guns that are involved uh, it, in this are it, it, coming exactly. from. Exactly.
4: I mean, so it, there is a come to Jesus moment we should be taking as a, as a nation because there is some responsibility with that. I mean, Mexico is not our little brother. They're supposed to be our partner in this side of the well, hemisphere. that's right. I and mean, our
5: next door neighbor yes. and they sued us for like $10 billion suing the gun in. The Mexican government suing the American gun industry, and a judge threw it out because the way the NRA and Congress has constructed the laws through lobbying and and passage um, is that a, a gun manufacturer is not responsible for the end use of the weapon.
3: Well, most people aren't responsible for the end use of most products, particularly when they're being used in a manner that contravenes how they were intended, namely the breaking of crimes and laws. So, yes, uh, I there guns, has to be, man, look, we have, just, to, we, have to we, we
4: have to kill, we have
3: to, that's the point. Well, of it. guns are supposed to be used, uh, to when, kill and hurt for, people for legal purposes. There's nothing legal about trafficking drugs but and engaging to, to in hurt uh, extra governmental <laughs> practices that are resulting in crime and death and yeah, drugs. So, but, 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 uh, but look, I, I, I think, people, right? again, we're now, now we're having to... Straw man argument. I think at the end of the day, uh, it, it, is, it is a straw man argument. At the end of the day, the hard truth is that we have a Mexican government that has been complicit with this drug trade that is happening. We know this. Everyone knows this. Department of Homeland Security knows this. The American response to this complicity has been to turn a blind eye to allow the border to remain open, to engage in policies that people across the board, who have worked in Republican and Democratic administrations, have said will not actually lead to us having the type of safety and security that is promised in our founding document. So, yes, we can have a conversation about the guns. We can talk about American responsibility and the need to make sure that we have better practices within our country so there's not a demand for the drugs. But we have done nothing to disrupt the flow of fentanyl coming from China. It's not made in Mexico. We've done nothing to make those cartels less comfortable. So I think that should be the priority in the aftermath of this horrific event where people's lives were taken and all of a sudden they want to send us, um, you know, a a get well card and, you know, a candy gram. I think everything is fine forgotten.
1: All right, friends, thank you very much for all those perspectives. Meanwhile, back here, prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office signaling that former President Donald Trump could face criminal charges over that hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. Do they have a case? We discuss next. better late than never. Uh, Okay, it's been more than six years since that $130,000 hush money payment to porn star Stormy Daniels was paid to keep her from going public about an alleged affair with Donald Trump. And today, the Manhattan D.A. is signaling that the former president could soon be indicted and face criminal charges. We're back with L.Z. Granderson, John Miller, Joe Pinion and a former White, former (laughs) Watergate prosecutor, Nick. Ackerman joins me. People sneak in and out of this panel so quickly that I don't actually know who's sitting next to me sometimes. This has now happened three times where I'm like, oh, hi, Nick. Nice to see you. Here. I did not no, see no, you. No, it was it, John started this today. Um, OK, Nick, great yes. to have you here. Before critics of Donald Trump get excited right. and say, finally, he's going to be held responsible for something I have read that this particular case of the Stormy Daniels payment of hush money is particularly risky and sort of unprecedented and complex. Do you agree?
7: No. I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, he paid money to keep her quiet. They took the money, they laundered it and hid it in the papers of the Trump Organization. And ultimately, it meant that the Trump Organization paid tax on something and filed an income tax return
1: that was false. OK, but I mean, uh, it's a free country. If I want to pay money to a porn star that I have an affair with, stick with me here, guys. You can do it. Ha-
4: this is ha- hypothetical, <laughs> Yeah, this is hypothetical.
1: <laughs> um, that I had an affair with out of my own business money, it's a free country. Can't I do that?
7: You can do that, but you can't lie about it on your taxes. You can't take it as a deduction, as a business deduction, when you make it look as though the money was paid for legal fees, which it was not. It was not paid for legal fees. It was paid to keep a person quiet before the 2016 election. That is not a reasonable business expense of the Trump Organization.
1: Okay, Mr. Legal Stickler, um, but oh, but furthermore, Nick, I mean, I'm joshing because that's a misdemeanor, right? That's a misdemeanor. No,
7: right? no, false tax return on New York State law. No, that's a that's a felony. That's okay. a felony. Falsifying records is a misdemeanor, but it's not a misdemeanor if you're falsifying records to commit a crime like falsifying a tax return. Okay, go ahead, Joe.
3: I don't know where to start. All right, we're talking about <laughs> a six-year-old Stormy Daniels mess... Uh, That starts off with, you know, a porn star who then hired a man who was already behind bars, uh, who should go nameless, uh, who ran around the countryside basically saying that uh, Donald Trump was Al Capone and that basically America had unwittingly uh, had a criminal syndicate attach itself to the executive branch of our government. And now we're talking about a matter of who checked the box and who decided to file the paperwork as it relates to the taxes that were filed. So I'm not here to make light of felony uh, behavior or felonious behavior. But I'm simply saying that if we're talking about gearing up for a 2024 election cycle where the 45th president of the United States is about to run against the 46th president of the United States, the notion that we're going to now go all the way back down this stormy Daniels rabbit hole, I think from a political standpoint, which is what I'll speak on, um, is not conducive to the American people getting to have a fair opportunity to discuss what are the issues pressing for this country. And I think from a legal perspective and then I guess the pseudo-political perspective, it's certainly, I think, a wrong approach for the people on the other side of Donald Trump, all it will do is the minute that he is indicted, uh, he will probably go up about 30 points in the polls in a Republican primary, and most likely you'll see some of those independents who are tired of this, uh, you know, kind of breadcrumb approach, uh, the refusal to mess or get off the pot, they're going to start saying, you know, maybe that Donald guy was right after
4: all. You, You know the irony in all of this, in retrospect? What? It appears as if he wouldn't have needed to pay her off anyway. That she could have come out that she could have said we had an affair and that his supporters would have said, eh, why? I don't know. We have a whole list of things they could have said no to, and they didn't. I mean, that to me is like the great irony. Well, well that that's
7: if always does, the irony of any right, kind of criminal case, that people always could have done something different, that they didn't have to commit the crime. I mean, the fact of the matter is, this is not a breadcrumb. This is a matter of filing corporate tax returns that are false. He knew it. He concealed it. Who the fact it? that it... He did. He, he's the president of the company. He's the one that knew it was going to be filed. I mean, he some... directed Weiselberg, his accountant, I... to do this. The whole thing was a plot from the beginning. Of and of they course also it did it with this other woman who was the former playmate. Who, he, she okay. also paid off. All right.
5: Hold
1: on. John, your thoughts?
5: So I think to pick up where Joe left off, you know, you wonder, OK, why this? Why now? But if you look at it as, as a strategy through the Manhattan DA's office, of course, they changed district attorneys after the election, so there was a reassessment of this case. But when they circle back to it, they do the Trump corporate case. They indict the company. Weiselberg, you know, testifies. Uh, his lawyer testifies. And what's revealed in that case is a pattern and practice of concealing what money was actually for, where money actually went, how people were paid and compensated, what the reasons for that was. So they have set the table for now something where it's not the corporation being charged. Mm -hmm. It's an individual Donald Trump if a grand jury elects to indict him. And uh, that is a case where you're going to have some of the same witnesses talking about some of the same practices. And while there's an issue of the taxes here, there is also this argument um, that, A, they couldn't have done this a long time ago because the Office of Legal Counsel says you can't indict a sitting president while in office. But B that this money was only being paid to her to be quiet because he was running for president so meaning
1: it's a campaign contribution
5: that it mm-hmm. is a campaign expense that is not being documented and in fact concealed
1: and is that uh, we only have one well, that's a left. crime
5: that's certainly
7: a and, crime
1: but will they be able to prove that Oh, I think,
7: I think they can, because why else would he have paid the money to her? I, like I mean, it wasn't pay. a gift or a past payment for services rendered, right? You're More
3: brilliant money. legal minds yeah. uh, quick, than quick, me quick. have said, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. This entire affair uh, is toxic, it's trashy, but at the end of the day, is that the priority on the minds of the
5: American people? Yes. Trying to figure out They're what's going to the for difference? you,
4: yes. Yeah. The answer the so is not. absolutely yes. And there's a yes. grand jury in <laughs> no...
5: County that's thinking about something else, and the cases are piling up, yeah, and will see where they go. I I'll bet you.
7: <laughs> um, but this is, this is the first of a number of cases are going to be filed. I mean, Georgia is next in line, if not before this particular case.
1: All right, gentlemen, you have completely disregarded my time cues, you. <laughs> I am allowing it because it was a fascinating conversation. Thank you all very much. OK, so what does the term woke actually mean? New polling suggests that most Americans see it as a positive thing. We'll explain next. The war over education and what should be taught in schools, that was the subject of CNN's town hall tonight. Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, has his own strong opinions.
6: They're teaching children that they're inherently biased or racist because of their race or their sex or their religion. Uh, They teach that a child is guilty for sins of the past because of their race or their religion or their sex. They teach that a child is, is oppressed or a victim because of their race, their religion, or their sex. This is why it was so important for us to clearly define what was not going to be taught in schools and what was. Because this is a chance to make sure that we're not pitting our children against one another based on race or religion or their sex, but yeah. teaching all history the good and the bad.
1: Okay, I'm back with my panel. We're welcoming Patrick Healy of the New York Times. LZ Granderson is here, Hagar Shamali, Joe Pinion, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings joins us as well. Um, so, Elsie, are teachers teaching children to be guilty, to feel guilty, and to feel like victims? Now, now I mean, I, obviously, I'm saying that, I'm asking that sort of facetiously, but that is a byproduct. Sometimes of some lessons, sometimes some kids feel guilty and sometimes some kids feel victimized and sometimes some kids feel badly about the sins of their fathers. That does happen. That's that's real. But I've never seen a classroom, nor have I even seen an example of a teacher teaching a child to feel guilty.
4: And I don't think an example has been shown, which is why this is so disappointing. And what he said is so disingenuous, because there is value in teaching the good and the bad. And it isn't to make people feel bad so that we don't repeat mistakes so that we don't keep doing the same things over and over again. This reminds me of what happened with Colin Kaepernick and how they rebranded his protest to make it a protest of the national anthem as opposed to a protest to draw attention to criminal justice. This is nothing more than a shell game, and it's frustrating for me as a journalist because I'm trying to use the language of the people, but the definition continues to be you know, muddled by individuals like him.
1: But what are we supposed to do, one more question to you, when kids feel guilty?
4: I mean, listen, there were kids who were spat on, who were killed, right? There were kids who were bused for hours just to go to school. There were kids who were bused for hours to go to school, and then the governor was there. Hello, Alabama. So you can hear about that. It's okay, because there were kids that lived through that.
1: Scott, let let me quickly get Scott in. Scott, your thoughts on all this?
8: Yeah, I think a lot of parents are concerned about it. I think there have been materials discovered in Fairfax and Loudoun County in Virginia that were pushing... Uh, pushed by consultants that were hired by the school districts to push critical race theory and, you know, the concepts of uh, equity and all this and the education. Most of the parents I know just want to know, can my kid read? Can they write? Can they do math? Do they understand the basic core curriculum stuff? But if you look at the test scores at any state or school district in the country, they suck. They're terrible. Kids had massive learning loss in all these areas. And it was worse for the poorest kids and the kids that have racially diverse backgrounds. And yet we have a group of people out there who seem to be more interested in social engineering in schools than they do in core curriculum. I think that's what Youngkin and other Republicans are responding to. And it obviously worked in his campaign and it's working in his gubernatorial term because of his approval ratings in Virginia. I think people like what he's doing.
1: I mean, I guess, uh, Patrick, that it define, it's how you define social engineering and everything that, that Scott's talking about. Because, again, I would like to see an example of kids actually being taught to feel guilty. But I don't mm-hmm. doubt that it is ha- that some kids feel guilty. I mean, I think that that's just a different situation.
9: Right. And these kids are kids. They're often learning about a lot of these concepts, a lot of this history. For the first time. what I, When I listen to Governor Yunkin, what I keep coming back to is where is the space for free speech and ideas and inquiry in the classroom? If they're taught about history and what Governor Yunkin said tonight about slavery being the cause of the Civil War and kids ask about their own families, the legacy of their state, what is the teacher allowed to say? Because there is a real history there that I think Kids, teenagers, need to understand that they're a part of as Virginians. They consider themselves citizens. The governor has figured out a way to really harness a lot of concerns that parents have. And I'm not questioning those concerns. But can you imagine just being in a classroom where the teacher is sort of thinking, okay, the kid's asking me a question about his or her ancestors in the state, and I'm not allowed to answer it because it might make the kid feel bad Uh, Or it's it's somehow not allowed. It just it creates, especially for a party that cares a lot about free speech and ideas and open dialogue. It sort of creates these these limits and rules that get pretty complicated.
3: Yeah. Look, I think we just have to go back to the main purpose of a school. The school is supposed to make sure your kids can read and they can add. If you go to Baltimore, where a disproportionate amount of the students are black and brown, 78% of the high school students are reading at an elementary school level. Right here in New York City, 75 to 70% of the black and brown students cannot do math at grade level. And so it's a frustration for people that there is this increased uh, desire to talk about all these other aspects of an education, which are important, but it's certainly not the priority. It's almost a distraction. And yes, we should be able to tell the whole story of America, the complete story of America, the vilest, uh, darkest stains on humanity that have existed at the beginning and the inception of this country. But that is very different from people on the left pretending that they are not trying to lecture to people, uh, that they are not pretending that somehow they are individuals in school districts trying to say you don't have to tell a parent if the child wants a transition, that you don't have to tell the parent if their daughter has to make that horrible decision of choosing to have an abortion, you don't have to tell the parent anything, Uh, that begins to feel like to a lot of parents like you're trying to co-parent with them, like they're just the night shift and you get the priority during the daytime. And I think instead of dismissing that out of hand, uh, we should confront them head on, because alternatively, when we don't confront that head on, the pushback is always more Extreme than the extreme policy that gets pushed in the first place.
2: What are your thoughts? So, in addition to everything said, that I and I agree with with most of it, the thing that frustrates me the most is the politicization of our education system. And on one hand, you have political leaders. Um, and and in particular, the Republican Party that have used this to galvanize their base. Um, they bring it up at every issue, at every town hall, at every event, at every rally because they know it's a hot button issue. You hear them using these words woke. They don't know the definition of woke and they use it. Why? Because they've noticed that they solicit a reaction from parents and you have, on one hand, this way that they've used schools. These leaders have used schools to um, to further their political ambitions, and it's gross. But then, on the other hand, you do see it's this space has been created for parents to weigh in on issues sometimes that they don't know about. And by the way, I'm a parent of young children. I obviously care about their curriculum. I care about what they're learning. But I also believe that educators know best and that there have been systems in place and that they are continuing to evolve and learn. And, and like you said, that transparency and history and all this is so important. I just hate that there's even a space for this in a political debate. I want to very quickly get to this poll about woke because we talk about it a lot. And as you said, people don't know what it means. Just out of curiosity, how would you define it? So I, I should add, while I did note it late, earlier that I was not a doctor, I am a professor. I am an adjunct professor. I teach at Columbia. And it kills me because there is a very clear definition. It is to be alert to racial discrimination and prejudice, and to be aware of issues related to race and social justice. It's a very clear definition. And so when you see Republican leaders go out there and say, oh, you know, we need to fight against this, there's anti-woke ideology, blah, 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 I sit there and I'm thinking, you know, you're advertising your ignorance. You don't know what this means. I never understood the term woke, the word to be something so negative. Why are you making it something negative? The opposite would mean to bury your head in the sand and that would be negative. You agree with that definition?
4: I do. And I think a lot of what happens on the left and in the right is that they mix up woke with being PC. Mm -hmm. And they're very, very different Mm things.
1: Okay, so let me just read you this poll because we just found it interesting. This was March 3rd and 5th. It's a USA Today Ipsos poll. And in terms of what it means to be woke, 56 percent of respondents say to be informed, to be educated on and aware of social injustices. 39 percent said to be overly politically correct and police other words. Scott, do you find that interesting that people in general see it in the way that it was just defined in its real terms?
8: I mean, I, I don't know. I hope every Democrat runs on this. I hope they read the poll and I hope they run as as woke as they can get in the next election, because I think it'll inure to the benefit of Republicans and conservative candidates when you take, you know, your your social, cultural viewpoints, as extreme as they may be, and use that to suppress basic common sense and basic American values. Yeah, you want to run on that? By all means. I I, I, I wish him well. On, that, on that
1: generous note, Scott, we will uh, <laughs> we'll take a break. Thank you very much for that opinion. Meanwhile, you have to stick around for this story, everybody, because Tennessee's lieutenant governor is raising some eyebrows over some Instagram com- Instagram comments that he made on photos of a scantily clad young gay man. And this, of course, is happening against the backdrop of his state, Tennessee, pushing several bills targeting the LGBTQ community. So. We'll show you and discuss next. Tennessee passing several bills restricting LGBTQ rights. And at the same time, the state's lieutenant governor, Randy McNally, has been posting supportive comments on the Instagram account of a scantily clad or barely dressed young gay man nicknamed Finn. The lieutenant governor's verified account includes the clapping emoji on this one and the fire emoji on another. He added multiple flame emojis on this one. And in this post, the lieutenant governor wrote, "Quote, Finn, you can turn a rainy day into rainbows and sunshine." <laughs> the account is called Franklin Superstar, and he responded to the lieutenant governor by saying, "You are all, you are literally always so nice, King." We cropped that last photo, but the young man is clothed below that line, and the panel is back with me. Um, so listen, Franklin Superstar, who is this kid? Who, he says that the lieutenant governor has been nothing but kind and supportive of him. And here is what the lieutenant governor, when he was asked, point blank about this, he did not say, oh, somebody on my staff did that or I was hacked. Here is what he said to reporters today about it.
5: I try to encourage people on my post and I try to support people. And, you know, it's just because he's gay. I also am friends that are gay, and I have friends that are uh, relatives that are gay, but I don't feel any animosity towards gay people. Randy, wouldn't
4: there be I a think better that's, place if we were treating clear. people as- Elsie? It's fairly clear, all right. That sounds me, animosity. It's messy. It's messy regardless of what the actual reasons are because of who he is, who that young man is, and how it looks, and he should know better. And that's just that you know, and that's just the end of it, really. It's like I'm not getting into what he may or may not be dealing with. I'm not getting into what their relationship is going to be. But on a pure optics perspective, he should know that does not look appropriate.
1: Well, yeah, and I'm not suggesting anything about that says anything about the lieutenant governor, other than that sometimes people in their personal relationships feel one way, and it's interesting when they legislate in a different way or their state legislates in a different way. Now he. Patrick, the lieutenant governor, has, I'd say, a mixed record in mm-hmm. terms of the LGBTQ um, bills in his state. Some he has voted for, some he hasn't. Some he's spoken out against, like the um, there was a bill to ban, I think, um, gay couples from adopting. And he didn't like that. He spoke out against that. So he has, I would say, a mixed record, but it's just interesting because Tennessee is leading the way on, yeah. you know, banning drag shows, et cetera, et cetera.
9: Right. And he's the lieutenant governor. He knows the political atmosphere. They've created legislation uh, that they've created. Look, we don't know what's in his heart. We don't know what's in his brain. There are Republicans who are supporters of LGBTQ rights. Uh, there are there are voices, you know, on kind of the spectrum. But he knows that he's the leader of a party that has been leading the charge in Tennessee, making it one of the most Uh, anti-LGBTQ states in terms of legislation that's been passed. And it just it just raises uh, a lot of questions. I mean, you know, as a gay man, I can tell you that people aren't posting uh, photos like that in order to get, you know, uh, hearts from the lieutenant governor. There's something kind of about that that raises, raises questions about what he knows about what he's doing and sort of the signal that that sends kind of the public well
1: i mean his says. office says that he's a prolific poster he posts to his constituents he supports his constituents that's what he has said like he doesn't draw he's not his office and he are not drawing any distinction but by, by the fact that he's a gay man other than that i mean who he's putting hearts on mm-hmm.
4: um other than he's but a you constituent you don't have to put fire emojis on his ass you could do in other photos Photos where he's like reading or like in school, thats other ways to be supportive than the sexually suggestive posts.
9: And something that acknowledges also the, what these laws are doing to people in Tennessee. I mean, there's sort of none of that. It, it just, it feels like it takes what is a very serious moment in the lives of a lot of gay people in Tennessee. And and takes it into something that like somehow we can kind of laugh about you know, from, from his point of view. I'll
1: tell you what Franklin, the superstar, who's the, the, <laughs> the uh, young man who's doing this, says. Yes, it was him. He's always been kind and uplifting, and I appreciate the support, so I never read into it. I hope he realizes that taking away people's way of expressing themselves is really evil and will result in suicidal thoughts in many in the state of Tennessee. He can be kind to me, and so he can be kind to many more people who are like me. Joe, your thoughts?
3: I think that's the best summary of the issue. Uh, I think that, look, we talked about in the previous segment that extreme positions or not taking into account the concerns of other people leads to a more extreme backlash. We have seen a rash of extreme policies towards the LGBT community. Some have been put forth by the Republican Party, but I would argue that it's a result of the fact that people are not taking some real things into consideration. There are people who have love and admiration in their heart for the entire community who are just not comfortable with drag shows for children. I don't think that's a hateful position, and I think it's a nuanced conversation that we should have, and yet it's been dismissed out of hand. There are people who simply think there are certain materials that should not be introduced to a classroom to children at a certain age. I think the majority of people who hold that position do not come from a place of hate. And so if we recognize that there will always be more attention paid to broken glass in Memphis than for the men walking around with placards saying, I am a man, then we should also recognize that there are going to be some people always who are coming from a negative place. But I think dismissing the vast majority of Americans who simply want to make sure that their thoughts and their considerations are being taken care of, having that conversation is healthy for America writ large, and it's certainly... Helpful for the LGBT community and making sure that we don't have as many of these policies having a demonstrative, dem-
4: uh, you know, kind of negative impact on people. I just want to say quickly, if yeah, I can, quickly, quickly. If this country had a problem with drag and children, what the hell is Bugs Bunny doing? <laughs> seriously, <laughs> I,
3: I think, seriously, I think, I, what is Bugs Bunny I, 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 doing? I, respectfully, I think that there is that makes light of a broader issue. I think that when He's you, doing when, drag, when you see when you see <laughs> when you see children with dollars putting them in G-strings, I think there are a lot of people clutching their pearls who are concerned about the fact that, as we said before, I want to know what's going on with my child, and I want to make sure that I have the autonomy to make the decision for them. And where did
2: that happen? That's not a track show, is it? I mean, I have to say, when I saw the posts that that the lieutenant governor was commenting on, I would be more comfortable with my kids watching a drag show than seeing those posts. No offense to Finn. Your posts look lovely. You seem like a lovely man. But I, I. But my kids are young, and I don't see why they need to see your naked derriere. And I have to say, as a former government official, we were trained over and over again on appropriate social media behavior. And And a lot of it is really, frankly, common sense. But it has to do with not doing anything that could be misconstrued as dramatic or inappropriate. Um, Certainly not doing something that could invite scrutiny. And that is what he's doing. And he's doing it pretty unapologetically. I'm not sure
1: they have that training. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Thank you all very much for that conversation. And we'll be right back. to tell you about this incredible moment today. The CEO of Norfolk Southern, Alan Shaw, was on the hill being questioned by senators about that February 3rd derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and during the hearing, another Norfolk Southern train derailed. This time in Alabama, multiple cars came off the tracks. According to a Norfolk Southern spokesperson, the trains are mostly carrying mixed freight with no waste or leak from any of the cars. The NTSB is investigating this. And we'll be right back. The Manhattan District Attorney signaling that former President Donald Trump is likely to face criminal charges for his role in the hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels. This is according to The New York Times. They also report that prosecutors have offered Donald Trump the chance to testify next week before the grand jury. Let's bring in our panel. We have Patrick Healy of The New York Times, Ellie Honig, the hardest working man in TV, Ested Herndon, also of The New York Times. We need two of you. And (laughs) our favorite Kentuckian, Scott Jennings, are all here to discuss. Um, Ellie, I've read this is a complex and risky legal case. Is that true?
6: Yes, it is. Look, if there is an indictment of Donald Trump, it will be historic. It will be momentous. But we also need to be quite clear about the problems, the infirmities in this case. Let me list a few of them. First of all, we're talking about conduct that is six and a half years old.
1: But is there a statute of limitations? Why does there is matter? going to be a
6: statute of limitations issue. Typically, it's five years. The response is going to be that some of the payments at the end leaked into that period. But they're going to have a statute of limitations fight. Let's start with that. Second of all, we're talking about a case that the feds across the street, my former office, the famously aggressive Southern District of New York, reviewed two years ago and said, no, thanks, we pass. Number three, we're talking about charges that are either going to be misdemeanor charges. No one's going to prison or possibly the lowest level felony, which even if there's a conviction unlikely to result or quite possible, it does not result in imprisonment. And you're talking about a case where the star witness here is going to be Michael Cohen, who I know personally, you know, personally. Look, I I I tend I happen to believe Michael Cohen, what he says right now. But you're talking about a guy who's a convicted perjurer. You're talking about a guy whose entire public identity is based on how much he despises Donald Trump. He will be shown to be quite partial (laughs) in cross-examination. And he's a guy who the Southern District of New York rejected as a cooperator because they found he was not fully forthcoming. This will not be an easy case. Okay, but if Stormy Daniels, would she testify? Probably, but she wouldn't have really relevant knowledge of what Donald Trump new and authorized, unless she, for
9: some reason, spoke with Donald Trump about this payment, which I don't think is the case.
1: Okay, good to know. Patrick, how do you see it?
9: I mean, Cohen is the star witness here, and I think to Ellie's point, it's a real... That brings a lot of baggage, a real problem. Being able to persuade a jury uh, to believe that all of this adds up, among other things, as sort of an an intent to defraud or an intent to commit a crime. That's kind of my real question about this, whether they will able be able to be persuasive that Donald Trump was trying to, that he was falsifying these records in order to commit a crime, or was he basically covering up just a giant, massive embarrassment during a political campaign? I realize that needle can be thread, certainly, but whether it's persuasive enough that, that this is actually a crime that, uh, that a jury's going to come down on, that just seems very hard.
1: Scott, how
8: do you see it? I mean, Donald Trump's being investigated for serious election crimes in Georgia. He is being investigated for whipping up a mob to overthrow the U.S. government and deprive the American people of the results of a free and fair election. And your leadoff hitter is going to be a seven-year-old paperwork misdemeanor because he had sex with a porn star? Give me a friggin' break. I read this story three times. I don't have a fancy law degree like Ellie. I'm just an unfrozen caveman. out here in the middle of the country. (laughs) I have no idea what this, what the crime is. I got to the 22nd paragraph. I'm like, what law did this guy break? And then I see it's a misdemeanor and we got to come up with some bank shot off the scoreboard, you know, legal (laughs) theory to try to get it to a felony. These people would be far better off if they really want to get Donald Trump. They'd be far better off letting the feds, and the people in Georgia do their work because nobody cares about this garbage. The real issues are in D.C. and in Georgia. This thing ought to die the death that the feds tried to give it two years ago. So, yeah.
1: Ellie, before I bring in a yeah. why is the Manhattan D.A. doing this, if you agree with Scott?
6: It's a great question. I think what you'll hear is the standard talking point, no man is above the law, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Scott makes a really good point. Sted and I were talking about before. If you listed out all of Donald Trump's conduct from most to least serious, this is, what, 6th or 7th? I mean, January. start with January 6th and the attempt to steal the election. you've got the mar-a-lago documents you've got obstruction of Mueller. you've arguably got the attempt to extort Zelensky through ukraine which was the first impeachment i mean you have to go down way down that list to get to this so it's a good question and frankly alvin bragg the da who who i should say is a friend of mine and a former colleague what does he say (laughs) i haven't asked him but but he will be asked that question why this and why now ellie why this long after the yeah
8: ellie Ellie, let me let me just say, he's your friend. He's not mine, so I'll just say it. He's doing it because of politics. <laughs> this is a partisan political prosecution. He thinks it's going to be good for him. He's still smarting over the backlash that he got uh, for not, uh, if I guess, putting off the thing a couple of years. This, this is politics, and if you want to get Trump injecting politics into it, into the prosecutions before the feds and the people in Georgia get to do the real work, this is how you destabilize the entire thing. This is a terrible idea, and I've yet to talk to anybody tonight who thinks it's smart. Instead? Democrat or Republican. Instead, you you cover (laughs) politics every
10: day. I mean, I think that this is going to be the kind of political takeaway. If you are Donald Trump, I was just at CPAC. That is a universe that is yearning for him to be treated as an underdog who wants these cases to be kind of tossed aside as frivolous and tossed aside as not substantive. To Scott's point, to lead off with a case that is not where top of mind where voters are, which are not the facts that they are familiar with, certainly leads the, I can hear the Trump wing now, cleaning up to say that this proves the DOJ indictment, the, uh, the DOJ conspiracy. This proves the FBI conspiracy. And We should be clear that this that was bad faith arguments that were going to happen probably no matter what. But the truth is that when you, when you bring up something that I think is not, uh, to, to uh, Ellie's point, the top things that people think about when it comes to Donald Trump, that allows those arguments maybe to get some more legs because the answers to why this is happening now do seem to come back to politics.
1: Mm. Well, how about this argument, Ellie, if you don't like the other arguments? How about <laughs> the argument that this happened during a presidential campaign? And Donald Trump certainly believed as did, I assume, Michael Cohen, that this would hurt him in the presidential campaign. And for that reason, it sort of misled voters and it was a campaign contribution. That's one of the arguments there. Well, that's
6: exactly what the argument the prosecutors will make will be. But let's keep in mind, you have to think about these cases. They're not just paper cases, right? You have to stand in front of a jury of 12 people and you have to get them unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt. This is conduct that is old. The offenses here are quite minor Um, There are questions about intent and knowledge. We can all sit here and say, of course, Donald Trump must have known. He had to have known. Michael Cohen will surely say that. But is that enough to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt? A guy who's very savvy Mm. about walling himself off, about having things papered over, about having his henchmen like Michael Cohen do things. It is not going to be an easy case.
1: Okay, gentlemen, thank you all very much. And we'll be right back. Governor Ron DeSantis being accused by some Floridians of banning books in schools. He says that is not what Florida's new law does.
9: This idea of a a book ban in Florida that somehow they don't want books in the library, that's a hoax. Uh, And that's really a a, a nasty hoax because it's a hoax in service of trying to pollute and sexualize our children.
1: Hmm. LZ is back. Harry Entin is joining the conversation. Estet is here. And Joe is back, and Scott is back as well. I am. It's just embarrassment of of riches here. Um, (laughs) All right, so let me explain to you what is going on in Florida. So there's this relatively new state law. It just went into effect. It requires all material in school libraries and media centers to be approved by a trained librarian or a media specialist. So because that law is vague, and this we've seen happen in Florida a few times now, that the law is so vague, it sort of paralyzes people Mm -hmm. because they don't know exactly what is right or wrong. And so some teachers have decided to remove all books from their classroom until they can find out if they're approved. So he's right. It's not an official book ban, but it's having the effect of a book ban because teachers don't know what's right or what's wrong. Here's an example of some of the (laughs) books that have been removed in one county, Martin County. The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, Beloved by Toni Morrison, My Sister's Keeper by Jodi Picoult, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. That's a a book that my kids read in high school. The Kite Runner. um, I believe my kids read that maybe in eighth grade. Uh, Maximum Ride, School's Out Forever, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I don't know those last ones. Um, Okay, Uh, Scott, your thoughts on this?
8: Well, Ron DeSantis hasn't banned any books in Florida. It's a complete lie. I'm not sure an honest story is ever written about this guy. The people taking books out of classrooms are the teachers. We said
1: didn't ban it, but they're taking it out because they're teachers. That still has yeah. the effect of kids not having the access and to these books. And I-
8: I know, I know, but, but, but if you look at the conversation around this, it's the Ron DeSantis book ban, and you just pointed out correctly, it's the teachers there who are taking the books out, so then they can then say it's the Ron DeSantis book ban. I hope people got a chance to watch Governor DeSantis' press conference this week, where he showed some of the absolute pornographic material that had been found in schools— It was so pornographic, in fact, that the TV stations in Florida had to cut away from the press conference because they couldn't show it on their airwaves. So if you can't show it on TV at an official government press conference, would you put it in the hands of a third grader? I think not. He's doing the right thing. There's a lot of dishonesty around what he is doing, but I think the way you explained it is correct. There's no book ban, but what he did this week to expose the pornography that they've uncovered was right on.
1: Um, I think we have a... An example of one of these uh, ones that you're saying and he's saying um, is pornographic. This is the book Flamer. Are we, did we censor this, guys? Or, okay, we censored it because I know I don't want to shock you guys.
11: Yeah, I know. (laughs) I'm a very young, innocent boy. Of
1: course
8: you did.
11: Of course you (laughs) did. You
10: had
8: to censor it. That's how bad it
1: is.
10: And this is
8: cable. Okay, (laughs) let's play it.
11: Flamer, by Mike Curato, was founded Broward, Collier, Hillsborough, Marion, Seminole, and Volusia County schools. The camp the boys go to in the book has an island that the book says looks like a frying pan, but we're all certain it looks like f***ing balls.
1: <laughs> now, I wish I knew. I don't know what grade <laughs> that's for. If that's high schoolers, I, I don't know. Words don't scare me like that um, if that's for high schoolers, but I just wish that I had more context on who, what librarians are pulling that. LZ, your thoughts.
4: Well... <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, I, I, first, did you know that the bill in Tennessee that we were just talking about doesn't say the word drag?
1: Yes, now I do. And? Yeah, that was DeSantis' so, video, by the way, what we played. That was his, his video, and I believe, I don't know if he censored it. But yeah, yes, so, but I feel so, that, so, so, that they've implied what they mean what they've by they've implied drag. what they mean. Yeah.
4: The Constitution, you know what's not in it? The word slavery. Interesting, Right. But all the laws are there to support it. They just don't use the word. So I hear what Scott is saying. He hasn't banned the book officially. But you don't necessarily need to name a thing to ban a thing. And I think what's happening here is the census is picking and choosing how he has his outrage, to borrow a phrase from Chris Rock. And he's using it to just position himself to be president or at least run for president. And I wish he would just run and leave my community alone.
11: I, I, look, Ron DeSantis has, in my opinion, been running basically for president now for two years. And I have been of the belief that he was running a very strong campaign, a shadow campaign, you might say. But he's usually been on the offense, and now he's on the defense. He's been on the defense. He was on the defense in that press conference, and he's been on the defense this entire week. And his poll numbers, which were rising, all of a sudden have slid down. Is a that bit.
1: right? So why do you think it's this? It's this um, topic. Well, I'm not saying it's necessarily
11: this topic, but what I am saying is that all of a sudden the heat is on him. Now all the pressure's on him, right? He's up there in the polls with Donald Trump, and now he's getting that national media attention, and now he's no longer being treated with kid gloves. So we'll see if he's able to take the heat in the kitchen, but so far he's been on the defense, not on the offense for a change.
10: Mr. Ed? I mean, when I look at what Ron DeSantis is doing here, I look at kind of baiting liberals. I mean, what he does and often these kind of set plays that come out of Florida is he puts a pretty vague law into place that I, I think then there's a social media reaction. I think one of the key things we see from Governor DeSantis is there is a period where he's not seeking to explain what the intent of that law is, is ignoring media requests about the specifics, but then will take the overreach of how people respond to then go further prove the point. This is someone who's running a very specific campaign targeted at that GOP primary base and has sought to bait the overreach on specifically these type of topics. And so I see a lot of politics at play here for someone who is trying to create that name recognition and has succeeded in terms of really creating an identity from himself that appeals to Republican voters without being offensive to Donald Trump. He is doing this as a Florida governor view rather than <laughs> I'm a running for president <laughs> view, and functionally it's the same thing.
1: That's a clever strategy. Yeah, though, yeah, yeah it, it, is, it is. It's a
10: very specific thing that he's done throughout these kind of set plays he's doing from the governor's office. Yeah. Uh,
3: look, I think, again, it's this notion where we change the definition of words. There's no specificity of, 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 of language. Uh, what does woke mean? To one person means one thing. To one person means another thing.
1: Well, what you part's ch- vague here?
3: Well, look, I think the part that's vague here is the fact that you have people on the left who want to call this a book ban. The hard truth is that every time we just had the the, uh, town hall with Glenn Youngkin, part of the reason why Glenn Youngkin uh, became the governor of the state of Virginia is because of the fact that parents were concerned about materials being taught in the classroom. They called it CRT. We all know that CRT is a colloquial catch-all for all the things that people don't want to talk about, whether it's uh, the LGBTQ issues, whether it's the materials in the books. And so what happened with some of those parents? to find out they ended up on terrorist watch lists instead of us, again, having that intricate, real conversation with the parents about those issues. So yes, every time there is a PTA conference or a PTA meeting where parents go to read passages from a book being taught to their children, and it can't even be read out loud uh, when we're talking about issues and we can't even show the book on television, all of that reinforces the fact that there are parents who are concerned. And the consistent problem on the left is that people dismiss those concerns out of hand and say that they know better, which quite literally is why every Republican in the country
4: is talking about it. Ju- I would just like to add that I think on the other side of that conversation, and no, oh, by the way, I'm an independent. I know you think I'm a liberal or whatever, no. but no, I'm, I'm right <laughs> down the middle. But I want to say that the parents who are concerned about what's being taught, there are parents who are concerned about what's not being taught. And those parents in Florida don't have a voice right now. There are parents who are concerned that you aren't learning about your history the way that you should. There are parents who are concerned that you aren't reading the books that they think you should read. Why aren't we listening to those parents, too? Because they exist in Florida and the rest of the country, just like the parents And also,
1: I just want to say, and I have to go, but I just want to say, I don't know if these teachers and, or librarians are Republican or Democrat. I have no idea. I just know that they were, they feel so anxious about this, they, they removed all the, the books from their classes. Well, yeah, and, and I, I think that's, that's, that's the, the, the point, problem, the
3: vagueness of these laws. Yeah. But overall, I think to your point, yes, we need to tell the whole story yeah. of America, the beautiful and also the bitter. Yes. But the hard truth is that when you've got these classrooms, you know, AP African American Studies, it's not about getting rid of the class, it's about having a real conversation. Is queer theory a com- important component yes, of it that is. class? Yes, And it that a queer theory <laughs> is different from actually having a conversation okay. about right. the contributions made by queer people to the civil rights movement got from it. the Bayard, Russell, of the Thank you world
1: both. And Thank you all very much for this. Can you us to shut up? For this, no. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, these are so compelling that we could go on and on. They're telling me to shut up yeah. in my ear. (laughs) Okay, please stay with me, everyone. Up next, the former head of a federal board created to combat foreign disinformation talks about what happened after that board was disbanded and the target that she became of this right-wing media and then what happened to her life. She was hired by the White House to monitor and combat disinformation, but Nina Jankowitz quickly became the subject of disinformation herself. Jankowitz says she's been stalked and harassed ever since her short stint as the head of the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board, a role that she left within weeks. The board has since been disbanded, but she's back in the spotlight today because Republican Congressman Jim Jordan is subpoenaing her to testify in front of Congress. And Nina Jankowicz joins me now. Nina, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. So this board was set up by the Biden administration. It was this disinformation governance board. It was quickly disbanded. It was basically painted by the right as some sort of Orwellian control board. And it was quickly disbanded. And that could have been the end of the story. But it wasn't. You were subjected to all sorts of online harassment, as well as in person stalking. What happened to your life after you left that role?
12: Well, Allison, you know, my life has been kind of upended over the past 10 months, and that in large part is due to the lies that the Republican Party have told about the board and the lies that Fox News has told about it. Uh, This idea that it was an Orwellian censorship board has absolutely no basis in reality, um, and frankly, I wouldn't have taken the job if that were the case. And these lies continue to be repeated by the people who are threatening my family today, and they're the basis of this subpoena that Jim Jordan has sent to me. Now, unlike Jim Jordan, I have respect for the institution of Congress. So I will be honoring that subpoena. Uh, but the fact that the weaponization uh, of government committee is, is targeting people like me, private citizens who simply wanted to serve their government in their area of expertise, uh, is really problematic. Congress is meant to be a serious institution, not a circus. And what we've got right now is, is frankly a clown show.
1: And some zealot also started stalking you. And you were you pregnant at that time?
12: So uh, I was pregnant right before I resigned my position. I had my son a couple weeks after I resigned, and this man has continued to uh, stalk and harass my family for the past ten months. And thankfully, I, I recently received a protective order against him.
1: Thank goodness. And so, I mean, that sounds awful. Um, as you have, I'm sure, have been following, uh, Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox. A lot is, has come out about the inner, you know, machinations of Fox. Are you
12: considering suing Fox? Yes, Allison. I just launched a GoFundMe to kind of get that suit off the ground. I think it's really important that we hold people accountable for the lies that they tell, uh, because lies don't work in a democracy. We need to understand the truth about how our government is operating, uh, how uh, institutions in our country are operating, and when institutions like Fox are just lying to their viewers for profit, which is what they did about me hundreds of times, uh, not only does it affect our democracy, it ruins lives. And so I want to stand up for people, public servants who are thinking about going into government, and and say that this is not acceptable. I want to make sure other women never have to go through what I've gone through. And frankly, I want to make the democracy that we live in a better place for it. Uh, I think, you know, there there's a high bar for these suits, obviously. I was clearly a public figure before I went into government. But again, I, I having looked at the hundreds of times that Fox has lied about me in a coordinated fashion long after my resignation from government, I think that my case does meet that high bar.
1: And it would be a defamation lawsuit.
12: Uh, Defamation and false light, although, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to speak to the specifics. So I'll let my legal team do that uh, in the future.
1: Okay. And so about this Jim Jordan subpoena, what what do you think he wants to know from you now?
12: Well, you know, the basis of Jim Jordan's subpoena, as I said before, has been lies that have been disproven by documents that Congress has had in their possession since uh, the summer. Um, so I am not sure what he wants to ask me, frankly. That isn't already in those documents. Uh, he has said he wants to know how the board came to be. Frankly, that was before I was brought into the administration, so I can't really speak to that. Um, I can talk to the ten weeks I was in government and the fact that I was there simply to uh, to coordinate pre-existing work. That that was going on within the Department of Homeland Security to keep Americans safe, right? Uh, the portfolio of DHS has to do with things like disasters and border security and cybersecurity, and those are all issues which disinformation touches. That's all we were meant to do. I was meant to coordinate, to kind of lovingly herd governmental cats, uh, not to, uh, to censor people. And I, as I said before, I wouldn't have taken the job if that's what it were. I've spent my career standing up for free expression in places like Russia and Belarus. I was not going to take that away from American citizens.
1: Nina Jankiewicz, thank you very much for telling us this personal story. Obviously, we'll be watching what happens when you appear before Congress. We really appreciate your time tonight.
12: Thanks for having me.
1: Back with my panel, Elsie Granderson, Harry Anton, Ested Herndon, and Joe Pinion. Um, Joe, she makes a case that she was never going to target conservatives. She was about, you know, basically foreign disinformation and trying to keep the Homeland Security safe.
3: Well, she was not under oath, right? And I think this is the whole point. I think that.
1: But so you don't believe what she was just saying?
3: Though. I'm saying that, first and foremost, let me just say that what occurred to her. After she left that office, during the course of her being in office, was despicable. So I just think that has to be acknowledged. Uh, That doesn't change the fact that people have a sensitivity uh, to the notion that America would erect something akin to a ministry of truth. Now, she's going to say that that is not what occurred. The reality is we have no idea what occurred because she has not testified under oath before Congress. So I just think that on some basic level... People want to know what happened, particularly in light of all the stuff that came out with the Twitter files, with the notion that we now know for a fact uh, that there was a backdoor created with social media companies to allow people like the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI to uh, willfully do whatever they wanted to do on
1: Okay, but she wasn't with a social media company. I mean, I guess my point is is that why do why do conservatives minds go to something or rather than thinking, oh, we do have a problem with disinformation online from foreign adversaries?
3: We certainly do, right? But the point the, the, what was the purpose of the creation of the office, right? Not just what you wrote down on paper, what was the nature of those conversations she was having? I don't think that we can just pretend that you are, are not connected, right? No, you didn't work for Twitter, but there are requests coming through your office that were then being relayed to Twitter, that were being relayed to Facebook. So if we understand without, you know, that it is a nonpartisan, bipartisan reality, uh, that people's free speech was in many ways impacted by a government agency uh, then asking private companies to do things at their behest, then the emergence of this agency in the midst of this begs certain real questions, and I don't think it's unreasonable to ask them, and that has nothing to do with the fact that the despicable acts that people have made uh, beyond that scope are just something that should not be part of our public discourse.
10: I mean, I hear that. I would say we do know, though, that there is a pattern between how Fox uh, zeros in specifically on these individuals and the nature of harassment that comes after that. We have seen this playbook too many times to act like it is a surprise when this stuff happens. This is the logical result of the continuous targeting of individuals that this type of harassment happens. And they have not seemed a willingness to care about that at all. And I think that is a baseline we should acknowledge from there. At the same time, I think it is very much within the kind of conservative rhetorical lexicon that something like this disinformation board would be immediately seen as Orwellian. I mean, I, I don't. I, what I don't understand is why the Biden administration didn't see that coming. I mean, like, but at the same time, I, I don't think it excuses those kind of actions that come forward, and it also does not get to what I think is a real truth of what you just said which is that there is a problem with misinformation there is a problem with foreign adversaries targeting that and there is currently not a solution i i I, you know i just find it that
11: we go about these things and we almost go about them the wrong way right i think there is interest in knowing what the biden administration did on this right but at the same time jordan's uh you know committee or subcommittee or whatever it is It's tainted from the start. People think it's political. We know this from the polling data. (laughs) Republicans love it. Republicans love this idea of investigating all this stuff. But I think what we're talking about, the general electorate, the public at large, like what the heck is going on here? And we're wasting our time with this. So I think this is going to be a real problem for Jordan as he tries to investigate her and the whole Biden administration is, is he actually going to make a dent or is this just something that's going to be essentially in a conservative echo chamber. This is the
10: real power of that speakership fight, because in a different world, McCarthy would have more wiggle room maybe to push back against the scope of those investigations. But the America First Trump wing made very clear at the beginning of that House fight who's going to set the agenda.
1: I have to go, over quickly, LZ, thoughts?
4: My only thing about this entire conversation is that there is disinformation, and some of the people who are on this committee are part of that. Information. So you're right, it's already politicized, but it's politicized because the people who are putting this together are already tainted themselves. Yes, Jim Jordan certainly tainted
5: well, I Okay. I think
3: there's a, a level of brokenness in our politics yep. writ large, particularly in the food fight that we have in the House, yep. that makes these conversations more difficult.
1: Okay, I gotta go because we have to get to this. The state of Michigan took very important action today to try to stem gun violence. Just weeks after the deadly shooting at Michigan State University, two college students who were involved in making this happen are gonna join me now. The Michigan State House taking action to expand background checks on guns today. Now the bill goes to the state Senate. The goal of the sponsors is to pass gun safety legislation like safe storage requirements and red flag laws. This became an even bigger priority after the mass shooting at Michigan State University.
13: We are in the midst of a public health crisis where firearms are the leading cause of death for children and teens in the United States. The leading cause of death.
14: This simply is not a political matter, but a matter of life or death. Do kids deserve to see their peers slaughtered in front of them? I do not think so. I think we deserve life and all it has to offer. I deserve life and all it has to offer. And I know it offers much more than this.
1: And March for Our Lives, press associate Micah Rector Brooks, an MSU student and shooting survivor, Asha Denny, join me now. Folks, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Micah, tell us how you feel about what happened in the Statehouse today.
13: Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. We've been waiting for this moment for so long, many years. Uh, so I'm really proud of. This step forward and looking forward to p- hopefully passing this really quickly and having these protections in place to prevent children from being murdered by firearms.
1: Um, Aisha, you lived this. Uh, you lived this just a few weeks ago. You call yourself part of the lockdown generation because you have been part of so many school lockdowns and you say that you are a generation that has been traumatized. And then, of course, it happened again during the MSU uh, lockdown. On February 13th, you hid in your dorm, huddled behind uh, the TV while your parents were on the other end of the cell phone, um, you know, trying to save your life and, and terrified of what was happening to you. And so what does this, what happened today, mean to you after living through that?
14: I think that this is a really great first step, but as Micah has said, this is this is just the beginning of a lot of different steps. It's a three-part package, and I believe that with time, um, all three parts will be passed, and this is just a really great first step, and it shows that people are listening to students. And so, um,
1: Isha, Are you still feeling traumatized? I mean, it's been so recent. And the fact that you say that you've lived this for so long with lockdowns, even before it became a reality, what is it like in your generation to be the lockdown generation?
14: I think that it's a really interesting concept because we have a whole generation basically defined by this common trauma of locking down during schools. And I've been doing this right around eight years old is when my first lockdown was. And I still remember it to this day. And they really don't prepare you for when it actually happens. And it's truly just not the same. And it should be something that nobody has to go through. Mm
1: -hmm.
14: Micah, do you think that this would have happened in the Statehouse
1: today without that shooting at MSU? Is that what galvanized people? Or is it the fact that you guys have been at work on this for a couple of years?
13: It's a little bit of both. I mean, we've been working with lawmakers very closely. And we were expecting this to pass by the end of March. But... Unfortunately, politics is reactionary. So the MSU shooting did put pressure on our lawmakers to move even faster. Uh, and with gun violence, it's a, it's a matter of life or death. So when every day that goes by without this package passed is another day that kids are being killed. So uh, it, it took too long, but I'm, I'm glad that they're finally making progress on this.
1: And of course, now it goes to the Senate. But what will change? What will change in Michigan if this passes through the Senate and becomes a law? Micah. Yeah, I mean,
13: I know that I and so many of my friends and classmates would feel so much safer going to school, going to campus when we have these actual protections in place. You know, we as Aisha was saying, we're the lockdown generation. This is just part of our lives, part of our reality, but it shouldn't be. This is just the floor and not the ceiling. So we need so much more legislation to be passed after the package. I mean, it simply is the bare minimum. Uh, but I I feel like a lot of young people will feel safer just existing, going out, out of the house and being able to live without the fear of being
1: shot. Aisha, how about you? How are you doing since what happened at MSU? Um,
14: we're currently on spring break. So definitely it's been a um, very time of a period to kind of tr- realize everything that happened to not only me, but my fellow students and my s- fellow students who are no longer here with us. And it's definitely been a healing sort of period, but we're we're Spartans and we're strong and we're gonna get through it. Is that what your t-shirt says? Yes, yeah, nice. t-shirt says Spartan strong.
1: That's great. Well, look, you guys are so impressive. Um, the fact that you have sprung into action, even though you were traumatized, and the fact that you've made this happen, basically, in Michigan is really impressive. Um, so, thanks so much for taking the time. And obviously, we'll follow this bill through the State House and see what happens next. Ladies, take care. Thank you both very much. Really appreciate you being here. We'll be right back. Thanks for having Thank us. Yeah. All right. So you order a Danish at a coffee shop. The clerk spins around the iPad for you to pay. And the only option is for you to add a 20% tip. <laughs> what do you do? Let's discuss with LZ, Harry, said, and Joe. Harry, do you tip? When you I do not.
11: Co- I do not frequent those types of establishments. I just nip the problem right in the butt. I like to go to establishments where I don't have to deal with that iPad. That technology is way too fancy for me. <laughs> what is going on in this world now that everything apparently deserves a tip? Look, I love to tip. I tip my cab driver uh, 25% on the way over here. But the fact is, is that there are certain things that don't deserve tips. If I sit down in a restaurant and I want a tip, Mm -hmm. I should tip. Tip 20, 25, 30%, whatever, depending on how good the service is. Big spender. But when it comes to a coffee shop, and I'm just they're just handing me the no, I'm sorry, no, I I I can't do that. I cannot obey that tipping
4: rule. Just not for me.
1: Okay, fair enough. LZ.
4: I tip. And the reason why I tip... You sound
1: I, sad. Well, because
4: I'm... You're guilty. Well, because I do. Because there's this stereotype that black people don't tip, right? So I am purposely going out there going, well, look at me. I'm a tip. <laughs> for every black person. You're tipping for every single black
1: person out there.
4: And wow. one time I went to... My mom took me, and she might be watching right now, so she might be embarrassed. She took me to a restaurant... I think it was in Soho, and she's like, I'm gonna pay for it. I was like, okay, da 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 da. And it was expensive, and she was like, woo. She was like, tip, they're not getting a tip. I was like, you give me that right now. (laughs) They're getting a tip. We are not gonna be those black people. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. Okay, I said.
10: Now, I do tip largely when when the iPad spins around. And it's honestly because of, like, a similar level of anxiety. I feel like when they look at you, you don't want to be the person who presses no tip. (laughs) But at the same time, I do think it's getting a little out of control. But I think I'm a baseline 20 -er, percenter. I want that to remain. But to Harry's point, every coffee, every bagel, every Danish is now turning into that. And at some point, you know... Uh, I'm going to have to do the black people wrong. I'm going to have to press, press, press no. You know
4: what? You can keep your card. I'll talk to the comedian. Yeah,
10: yeah, yeah. You tip for me. You got me. I mean,
3: look, when the coffee costs $8, uh, you know, something has gone rotten in Denmark. So I just think that, yes, we have to get more comfortable uh, saying no to tipping in certain situations. I think it's a great opportunity to get back uh, to giving tips in a largely cashless world uh, to make sure that the, bagging your groceries, get paid, uh, make sure that that person that really knows your order before you walk in the door gets a little bit extra. So I think there are opportunities when you can do that, but I just think in general, we have to allow people the space to say, hey, um, if you walked in and got a stick of gum at the grocery store, you're not obligated to leave 25%. Times are already <laughs> tough in Joe Biden's economy. See, uh, <laughs> he,
1: wow. snuck he, he snuck in. it out. Yeah, it yeah. uh, The reason that I tip right now, though I'm annoyed, is because it's so hard to find workers. So yep. I know that yeah. there's mm. such a yep. shortage of workers at coffee shops and restaurants and clerks at stores. So now I'm tipping more than I ever did just because I recognize, like, uh-oh, you're probably going to quit tomorrow. So I'm going to try to give you an incentive <laughs> To stay in this job?
4: My girlfriend Lisa in college, not girlfriend, girlfriend, but girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> she said tips stood for to ensure proper service. Mm. And I never forgot that. And I always think about that. And I go, you know what? Because they see me again. They know I was the one that tipped. You were the black guy. I was the black they guy tipped. that tipped. <laughs> That's,
11: right. That's why I go to Not <laughs> <different>.
4: that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I go to different coffee
11: shops each week, so they can't remember me if I don't <laughs> actually <remember this>. Also <laughs> so, clever. You know.
1: Very clever, because you're memorable, Harry. Do,
11: do my hair a different way each time.
1: <laughs> Very smart. Um, guys, really a pleasure to spend time with you tonight. Thanks so much for being here, and thanks to all of you for watching. Our coverage continues now.
0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save forty percent on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
4: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking: "Call Me Country." Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com/callmecountry.